was a boy, every year at Christmas, I would look forward to a very special moment. And we would hear the deep bass voice of one Boris Karloff. I always wanted to sound like Boris. Maybe, maybe when I get to heaven, I'll get to trade in this, this voice for that one. Um, but uh, he would come on and he would begin his narration of a story that begins like this. Now all the Who's down in Whoville liked Christmas a lot. But the Grinch who lived just north of Whoville did not. Amen? You know this story, right? How the Grinch stole Christmas. Now, I know they made a live-action movie and they ruined the story, but in the original the, the, the uh, inspired version of the story, the animated one where they just tell Dr. Seuss, you see the Grinch, who is this wicked creature. Uh, and he hatches a wicked plot to steal Christmas because he says to himself up in his mountain lair, I must find a way to stop Christmas from coming somehow. And so we see him dress up as a counterfeit Santa Claus with a counterfeit sleigh and a counterfeit reindeer and go riding down in the night into Whoville to steal Christmas from all of the Who's. He steals their presents, their food, their Christmas trees. He lies to a little child about who he is. He's a wicked creature. And as I thought about that story, uh, I thought about the book of Revelation and where we are in the book. Um, just how my brain works, I guess. And I, I thought about the fact that Jesus said the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. And in the last days, Satan will continue doing what he has always done to steal and to kill and destroy. He will offer up, as we saw last week, his counterfeit Messiah, his counterfeit prophet, his counterfeit kingdom with himself as the object of worship rather than the living God. And he will offer uh, himself up to be the king of a kingdom. And through his wicked servants, he will martyr Christians by the thousands and the millions and he will seek to destroy totally the nation of Israel. And his, he will do all of these things because his goal is to stop the coming, not of Christmas, but of the kingdom itself. And he has to stop the kingdom from coming somehow. But what Revelation reminds us of is the fact that just like the, the Grinch could not stop Christmas from coming, that it came anyway, in spite of all his scheming, in spite of all his wickedness, in spite of all his stealing, destroying, and lying, in spite of all of that, Christmas came anyway. And in spite of all of Satan's efforts to steal, to kill, and to destroy, and to prevent the kingdom of God from coming, it will come. It will come anyway. And not one single solitary promise, not one prophetic word 
that is given to God's people in Scripture will fall to the ground. Every single last promise of God will come true exactly as it was given. Every single one. And this week we're going to look at Revelation chapter 14. And I want to encourage you with that reminder as we look at this snapshot of an event uh, that, it, that foretells Christ's ultimate victory. And so I'd like to encourage you to stand as we read God's Word together. Uh, remain seated if you, if you can't stand or don't stand easily. Uh, but let's stand in honor of God's Word as we read it together. Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 to 5. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with Him 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads, and I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who followed the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, as we look at the Word today, Father, help us to remember that all of Your promises will be kept. Help us cling fast to the Lamb who stands with His people. Help us, Father, to be at peace and to remember that not one single promise you have made will fail to come true. Every single one will be kept. And Father, we pray that we might worship you in a way that um, is received by you with great joy as we celebrate the triumph of the King who is to come. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, before we get into the text, let me just kind of catch us up on where we are in the text. And we've been moving through the, the book together, but sometimes it's easy to get bogged down in all the details and to lose track of where you are. And so let me just share with you where we've been so far. Chapters 1 to 3, John sees a vision of Jesus like a flaming figure of fire dressed in white robes and with a golden belt around his, around his waist and speaking from out of the seven lampstands. And he speaks and he delivers letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor, which John faithfully records. And there's a warning and a rebuke and an encouragement and a promise of reward in almost all of those letters. And we went through that at the beginning of the year prior to COVID, if you can remember back that far. Um, and, uh, and then here recently, we've been moving through the unfolding of the rest of the book. Chapter 4, chapter 5, you see scenes of heavenly worship led by the four living creatures and the 24 elders and a vast multitude of people from every tribe and nation, every language and people group are... Uh, gathered around the throne proclaiming the worship of the King of Heaven. 
And then you see chapter 6 through 11, the unfolding of God's judgment, his first acts of judgment. The seven seals are open, and when the seventh seal is opened, the seven trumpets of judgment begin to blow. That takes you all the way through until you get to the blowing of the seventh trumpet, which is the, uh, the pouring out of the seven bowls, which we'll get to in a little bit. We're not going to get there this week, but we'll get there. Uh, but chapter 11 also contains the central verse of the book. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And that verse is right at the center of the book, right at the hinge point in the middle of what John is trying to emphasize. It's the meat in the middle of the sandwich, as we've said. And... Uh, and it is because the purpose of the book is to reveal how that comes to be. Chapter 12 looks back at the same three and a half year period of time in which the trumpet judgments are unfolding. And it shows us the same events with some additional details filled in. You see in chapter 12, the persecution of the nation of Israel by the dragon and his pursuit of her into the wilderness where she will be protected like Elijah and fed for three and a half years miraculously in the wilderness because Satan will not stop the kingdom from coming for the people of Israel and the reign of their Messiah and their ability to welcome him. Chapter 13, you see Satan proclaim his counterfeit kingdom and raise up his counterfeit Messiah and counterfeit Elijah to announce it. And uh, the reign of the Antichrist will be characterized by terror on every side for the people of God. But through that will emerge these people. We will see in this chapter, chapter 14, 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel who are appointed to reach the world with the gospel and who will survive and endure and what we're going to see uh, in the first three verses of this little section that we're looking at is that Jesus will make his saints victorious. Jesus will make his saints victorious. These 144,000 are, are all Jews. They're all uh, 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel. People say, well, we don't know who belongs to what tribe. Well, that may be. But guess who does? <laughs> right? The Lord has not lost track of who belongs to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he will raise up 12,000 from each tribe uh, that, that will be sealed for his service during the tribulation period. And they will endure through it. And not one of them will lose his or her life, despite the very best that uh, Satan, or I should say the very worst, that Satan can throw at them in terms of persecution and trial, they will endure through the end. And they will survive all the way through that whole seven-year period proclaiming Christ and the approach of His kingdom and the need to repent. And they will do so until Jesus arrives with His kingdom. You'll see that chapter 19. And it's glorious, by the way. I don't want to spoil it for you, but it's pretty impressive. All right, you can skip ahead and read it if you want. Um, but the 144,000 will 
survive to preach Christ according to the text here because, look at, the, look at your Bible, verse 1, because the Lamb stands with them. Now, I don't think that phrase refers to Jesus standing literally, physically on the earth in a way that He will at in chapter 19 in His return. I don't think this is talking about the return of Christ, His final day. I think it's the idea of very much like Daniel's three friends in the fiery furnace where the, when they go through the trial, the Lord shows up and protects them through it. You remember that? I see a fourth standing in the fire. Didn't we put three guys on? Right? The Lamb will stand with these 144,000 and no one will be able to touch them. When John Connery died this week, I, this is again just how my brain works with random facts, but he was in a movie once called The Untouchables about taking down Al Capone. And these people, it occurs to me, are going to be God's untouchables. There will be nothing that Satan can do to them, and he will try to shut them up in every conceivable way, and they will come through miraculously through the worst Satan can throw at them, just like Daniel's three friends. Now, we read earlier in the book that God marks His people during the tribulation. We read in the last chapter that the false prophet calls people, causes people who are not God's people to receive a different mark. Remember the mark of the beast? They're going to be marked with the name of the Antichrist. Well, God is going to have people who are marked with His name. Do you see that in your book? Uh, verse 1 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Remember the significance of having it written on your forehead. The beast is going to go through and mark people on the right hand and on the forehead because, why? Deuteronomy 6. You're to write the commands of God on your forehead and on your right hand. right? And so in perverse imitation of that, Satan will cause those who follow him to have his name, the name of the beast, written on their forehead and on their hand. Okay? But God is going to have different people who will be marked with the name of God and of the Lamb on their forehead. Now what that means, how that looks, I don't know if you'll be able to see it, like it'll be like a glowing cross that says Jesus or something like that. I don't know. Okay? I don't know what that looks like, we're not told, but these people will nevertheless be marked distinctly by God in a way that identifies them as belonging solely to Him and untouchable by the worst kinds of trial that can be thrown at them. In verses 2 and 3, we see something pretty crazy, pretty wild, that we hear with John a loud sound a thunderous sound like many harps being played. I don't know if there's actual instruments or not. I, I suspect not. But it's this thunderous sound like a rock concert. I don't know if there's banjos or not. Um, 
But there, it sounds like to John, many harps being played. I hope it's electric guitars, personally. But in any case, there's this thunderous sound, and it's the sound of what? It's the sound of the 144,000 singing a new song before the Lord. And it says that no one can learn the song except the 144,000. Why is that? It's because it's, it's a celebration, I think, a shout of triumph, a song of victory that God has carried them all the way through and their unique role has been fulfilled and they're praising God. Now, I want to be very clear on this. I think this ought to be something that should sharpen us a bit as God's people. Because nothing that we have gone through in 2020, not one single thing, will resemble anything that happens to the people of God in the tribulation period in the last days. And these people, having endured the very worst of it, do what in response? They sing. And they sing in praise to the Lord who sits on the throne. And they lead the elders and the living creatures in heaven in worship of Him who sits there. Now y'all, we say this as your pastor, I love you. Some of us had a freak out this week. Right? It was election week and things did not go the way some of you wanted and you freaked out. Let me just encourage you. There is nothing that happened this week or this year or in your life that you need to be concerned or worried that God is not going to come through for you. Indeed, when we go through trials, whatever they are, and I don't think, by the way, big trials are coming our way, and certainly nothing like what will be there for the people of God in the tribulation. Sing songs of praise. That's what God's people do. When Paul and Silas got beaten and thrown in prison, what did they do? They sang hymns. When the apostles got dragged before the Sanhedrin and they got beaten and shamed in front of everybody in their community, what did they do? They went out rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Jesus. So even if all your worst fears come true. Probably won't, but even if they do, what's our response? It's this response. To sing songs of praise to the Lamb and to Him who sits on the throne in heaven. Amen? This is a sharpening text for me. And I hope it is for you as well. It's worth meditating on what, how we respond to much lesser trials than whatever these people are going to face.
if they can respond that way, in much in the worst that Satan has to throw at them, then we can surely respond that way too. Amen? We're filled with the same Spirit of God. All right. Now, the other thing we see in this text is that Jesus makes His saints victorious. And He does so in such a way that He redeems them to live a blameless life. He redeems them to live a blameless life. Now, we've seen that that in verses 1 to 3, Jesus makes His saints victorious. And in the last two verses here, what we're seeing is that as Jesus saves people, as Jesus marks people as belonging to Him, He gives them a blameless life. There are several notable characteristics here, at least four, maybe five, depending on how you're counting. Um, but as you go through this, that John highlights about these people, and the first one is really obvious. It says that these are people of sexual purity. The text says they have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Now, please understand something biblically, okay? Biblically speaking, when a man and a woman are married and they are, have formed a one flesh covenant relationship before God, there is nothing about their sexual relationship with one another which is defiling. It is, in fact, holy and pure. It is just as holy and pure as if they are praying. Okay? Um, and so there's nothing defiled about that. However, every other, every other kind of sexual activity, real, imaginary, virtual, what have you, outside of one man, one woman, one flesh, covenant relationship of marriage is inherently, hear me on this, inherently defiling. And, and this is going to be a time period in the world's history in which Satan will rule through his minions on the earth entirely. And let me just ask you what you think is going to happen to people's level of sexual holiness when that occurs. You think it will go up? I bet not. In fact, what we see now where immorality is not only rampant but celebrated in our culture, it will be worse than that. Whatever the next step is beyond where we are, it will be beyond where we are. In fact, it will be far beyond where we are. And so God will put a special calling on these people, these 144,000, to, first of all, not get married, and second of all, to remain celibate virgins through the tribulation period. And I think it is because God is going to want a stark contrast between the holiness of His people and the unholiness of the world. And by the way, let me be clear. That's still God's expectation. Not that every one of us might be eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven as these people will be, but that every one of us who are believers exercise absolute sexual purity. Paul says it this way, 
that every one of you should know how to possess your vessel, which is a euphemism term, in holiness and honor. God calls these people to sexual purity and He calls us as believers in Christ to the same standard, sexual purity. Fidelity and joy within marriage, devotion to God, and celibacy outside of it. Amen? That's the standard. In addition to that, okay, uh, they are distinguished from the world by their loyalty to Christ. You see that in the text? The text says, they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. So in other words, God's Word to them is sufficient reason for them to go this way and not go that way. To do what He commands and to, not, and to reject what He has forbidden. That they are absolutely loyal to Christ. Now, men and women, I, 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 don't, I don't feel this way about our church, but I know there are a lot of people out there in the world that bear the name Christian who, who treat God's Word as if it is an entree selection line at a cafeteria. And they go, well, I'll take some of that, but I, I'll have the roast beef, but I don't want the green beans. They don't look good. Um, and I'll have this... And I won't have that. And ooh, more mashed potatoes. You know, and they, there's a menu of options, they think, as it comes to God's Word. But that's not true. Jesus says, come follow me. Lay down your life and follow me. And they are loyal to Christ. And men and women, we are called to be the same thing. To be loyal to Christ and follow Him wherever He goes whether that's in the comfortable circumstances or uncomfortable ones, whether that's in the financial prosperity or poverty, whether that is to another country or in this one, whether that is this kind of a job or that kind of a job. Wherever He leads, we follow. Wherever He leads, we follow. In addition to that, they are the first fruits for God and the Lamb. And I think that's a beautiful reminder. Because, you know, you read about the tribulation period and it just seems a lot like just unrelenting, horrible judgment in all kinds of forms. There's earthquakes and meteors and demons and all this stuff. And you're just like, oh my gosh! This, is, this makes for terrible reading. Don't read it at night. It'll give you nightmares, right? And, and, and what we sometimes forget is that along this same time, at this same moment in history where God uh, is bringing judgment on the wicked and He is also reaping a humongous harvest from every tribe and nation and tongue and people, this will be the greatest evangelistic revival period in the history of the world will be taking place in the tribulation. God will, through the 144,000, through the two witnesses He will raise up, and next week we will see, through the angels He will send, make sure that the entire world hears the Gospel.
And these are the first fruits of the harvest. You all know what first fruits are, right? You read your Bible. First fruits are when you go out, the harvest is ready. You go out and you take the first few apples, the first few grapes, the first of the wheat, the first of the crop that you grew, and you offer it as a sacrifice to the Lord because you're anticipating a much, much more abundant harvest. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. These are the first fruits for the Lamb from among the, the tribulation period. These are the people that Jesus has marked out that belong to me, but they are part of a much bigger harvest, a vast number of people who will come to faith in Christ through their testimony in this time. And we also see something else important. We see their integrity. The text says, no lie was found in their mouth for they are blameless. They are, in other words, people whose redemption by Jesus produces in them honesty and consistency between their actions and their hearts, between their words and their lives. You know, we've just wrapped up an election season. I trust the average politician and their word about as far as I can throw the guy or the woman, right? Which is, I'm, I'm 47 years old. I don't have that much muscle anymore, right? Maybe four or five feet is about how far I trust these people. Why? Because politicians lie as a matter of profession, right? Part of the job is to tell people what they want to hear rather than what is true. Are they blameless as a group? Certainly not. Amen? But as a group and as individuals, Christians absolutely should have no gap between what comes out of their mouth and what they do. Between the profession that they make of following Christ and the way they conduct themselves. That doesn't mean that we are called to be perfect. Amen? But it does mean that we are, perf that we are being perfected by the Lord. To be blameless means that if someone makes a charge against you, it doesn't stick. Because you live in a life of integrity and honor before God. And these people do. And we're called to do the same thing. Amen? In fact, as we, uh, that takes us to the end of the text. And I just want to encourage us all to consider how this text applies to our lives today. As I've said repeatedly, Throughout this study, this book is not here for informational purposes merely. Remember Dr. Howard Hendricks, and he would talk and he would be like, This book is not given, you know, this, and he would talk about the whole Bible this way. This book is not given to make you a smarter sinner, right? <laughs> and it is given for transformation, not information. Transformation, not information. And so let's consider by, by, um, by the Spirit how we might experience the transformation that God is pointing us toward. First of all, remember that Jesus always 
always makes his saints victorious. Not only in the end times, but in all times. We are never promised, never promised. There won't be bumps in the road. There won't be disease. There won't be job losses. There won't be physical or mental declines. There won't be suffering. There won't be persecution. There won't be death. As I told the first service, it reminds me of a country song. It's an old one. Some of you may remember. It goes, I beg your pardon. I never promised you a rose garden, right? That's exactly it. And in fact, that is exactly Jesus' word to us. That He never promised us a rose garden. He never promised us that we would go through this life unscathed. In fact, He promised us the opposite. He said that if they call me, your master, the servant of Beelzebub, what are they going to think about you? Right? It's enough for a servant to be like his master, a student like his teacher. If the master and the teacher went to his death as a criminal, what do you expect will happen to you? Okay? This is what you sign up for that I lay down my life, if necessary, in literal, physical sense to follow Jesus wherever He goes. But we have this promise that just as the Master is the fruits from among the dead, so also we who follow Him are part of the harvest from the dead too. And so not even death not even death can overcome Jesus' victory on your behalf. The Lamb will stand with you in every circumstance. And it's not what you remember, it's what you cannot forget. And so we need to not ever forget this, that the Lamb stands with us and He makes us victorious in every circumstance. That when all, when all the cards are on the table, that Jesus always rakes in the pot. He always wins. And we win with Him. However this week is gone, however your year is going, no matter what trials and suffering are yours, remember that Jesus always makes His saints victorious. Even over the worst of things, even over death itself. And He's with you in every single one. Not one moment where you will be abandoned. Secondly, Jesus always, 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 always redeems His people to live a blameless life. If your new birth in Jesus did not produce new life in Jesus for you, you didn't get the new birth. It isn't Jesus that you followed. If your life did not change when you met Jesus, it's because you didn't meet Jesus. Amen? Because Jesus always changes us. He welcomes us exactly as we are. As dirty, as filthy, as messed up, as corrupted as our sin makes us, Jesus says, come on! Right? He is the Father who runs to us 
and throws his arms around us and says to his servants, bring the best robe and put sandals on his feet and a ring on his hand and kill the fatted calf for him and there is rejoicing. Right? But he doesn't leave the son stinky when he brings him home. Right? He cleans us up. He cleans us up. And we're called, as I've said, to a life of undefiled sexual purity. And if there's one area about the church in America that I could fix today, if I could fix that one, and just by waving a magic wand, I would do it. Because this is the area where the church has compromised more than anything. And and seeing no difference between us and the world, the world considers that we have nothing to offer. Because they will say, this is, is the best thing going. What do you got that's better than this? And we say, well, uh, we, all, we got Jesus, but also let's join you in, our, in your sin. And the trumpet sounds an unclear note and no one gets ready for battle. We are called to undefiled sexual purity with our eyes, with our mind, with our body. Like the 144,000, we are called to follow Christ wherever He goes and recognizing that that may not always be comfortable or fun or pain-free or easy. We can follow wherever He goes because we are loyal to our Lord. Like them, we are redeemed from among all humanity as part of God's harvest. And we have, like them, a responsibility to participate as workers in the harvest. Like them, we're called to live in complete integrity without hypocrisy or inconsistency between our words and our deeds or between the words in our mouth and the, the way our hearts actually are. We're to live a blameless life. And by the way, if there's any part of this description which as we read it, as we talk about it, the Holy Spirit is whacking on your heart saying, hey, guess what we're called to do then? To repent. And to receive cleansing and forgiveness and to make progress in perfecting our lives so that we look like Jesus. We don't do it on our own effort. We do it as we respond in obedience to the Holy Spirit prompting. And then He empowers what He calls us to do. Nevertheless, we're called to that kind of a life. And we pursue the Lord once more. Now, I'm done. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for this passage. It's sharpening to us in so many ways as it rubs against us. The sharp blade of Your Word sometimes cuts us, Father, even to the dividing of soul and spirit. Father, um, when we're cut by Your Word, we pray that your Holy Spirit might bring us to repentance that we might find healing from that. And that we might renew our devotion to You. That we might live in single-hearted 
single-minded devotion to Christ and follow wherever He leads in purity and integrity, living a blameless life as members of the harvest who participate in it. Father, I pray You'd remind us that You always lead us in triumphal procession, as Paul says. That victory is Yours and we need not worry about the day-to-day trials and difficulties of our life because ultimately the victory is already won. The battle, the war is over and the battles are just remaining as we clean up the mess that sin and Satan have made of the world and continue to make until Christ reigns. Christ's reign can't be stopped. Father, I pray you would remind us that the kingdom is coming and the king with him and to use our lives to honor him in all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.